We've now come to this last portion of our summary in regards to the recap of chapter 1 through 11. And in this particular portion, as I discussed from my last sermon, and to today, we'll be looking at the Christian walk as it is shown in the Gospel of John. Let us go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for the Sabbath day that you've given us, Lord, and we are mindful of this day that you have allowed us to be here. Such mercy and loving kindness you have for us to have our faculties provided for us, fully enabled. We here today, Lord, should show our love and gratefulness and take it upon these means of grace that we've been afforded. And of such, compared to the world, they live on things that are earthly. And when they lack, they see their own devices to maintain but then, Lord, you have shown through your word as it is not only food for our soul, but then in understanding and give us hope and counseling that when we do lack earthly things, you show that you provide and care for us more. As you stated in scriptures, if so much you take care of the birds, how much more do you take care of us? So in this, Lord, and on this Sabbath day that you've given us, Lord, let us be mindful of what's being taught and what's being spoken of. Therefore, be with thy servant and be with the congregation. May they have a childlike love and a willing mind to receive thy will. In Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Now, in particular, this sermon, we will still be looking at verse 30 and 31 of John chapter 20, as it will now bring this series of the summary to a conclusion. And again, by recollection, it reads, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, in this excerpt, we're going to look at the Christian walk in John chapters 1 through 11. This is not to be comprehensive. This is not to be exhaustive. So, sorry to bear the bad news and burst your bubble, but it will take approximately four to five more sermons to get through this. And I would love that we continue back on John chapter 12 on to the end as we will venture to see now Jesus last week and or the passion of our master. And that's how it's been titled when you look at the last chapters, in particular from verses from chapter 12 on to chapter 21. So then to begin, I want to make an acute point, and I want to use the Messiah's words. He states in John 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, the evangelist, John the Apostle, moved to notate this interaction between the Messiah and Nicodemus. And Nicodemus then answers in verse number four in a peculiar way. How can a man be born again or born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's room and be born now, can he? And the response, this is something telling. He is a high officiate in the Sanhedrin. So why all of a sudden this adage that comes to the Messiah is something new to him, as something he's never heard from before? Believe it or not, is it new? 
No. And let's take this little portion into which a reader comes to the book. And you're looking and you're trying to understand and gaze as to what is transpiring. But what you're trying to also do is make it comparable to your own time. It's only natural. So in our day and age, the Messiah has come. He's resurrected and he's ascended to the right hand of God the Father. But in their age, however, it was the promises coming that they were still looking for, if not trying to anticipate. So when Nicodemus notes and poses the question, in particular after hearing the Messiah's response, it should be no shock that he's still trying to figure out if this is truly the Messiah. You see, he stated in verse 2 in John Three, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs, quote unquote, that you do unless God is with him. So the key clauses here is as note, you have come from God as a teacher, and therefore no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. You know, Nicodemus could also have said, well, we have seen the signs that you were performing, but others have done so as well. And they claim that they are from God. Are you from God? Or are you the Messiah? Where is he getting this adage? Again, his office, his position among the Sanhedrin. He is well aware of what the Pentateuch states. It could be that he got it from Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 4. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign... And or wonder, and the sign of wonder comes true concerning which he has spoken to you, saying, Then let us go after the other gods whom you have not known, and let's serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. But then, by what Nicodemus has posed in verse number four, does our master answer him in the affirmative, that yes, I am the Messiah? No. For he then takes and continues on to doctrine. Because it is a test, especially given, again, his position and the anticipation in their time of the Messiah to come. He states, and I quote, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. So then, our Messiah and his wise and holy counsel, where would he then pull this adage in order to draw the answer that he's looking from, from Nicodemus. I bring to you Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. Why so? It states, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and note the following clauses and cause you, cause you to walk in my statutes, and furthermore, 
you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You see, the test to which Nicodemus was to take was to truly see if he understood the adage of which Moses was speaking in Deuteronomy. So when our master speaks of being born again or born of the spirit, it's the same analogy and adage that he's using with Ezekiel. And that should have been apparent and it should have came to mind, especially given Nicodemus' position. Now, given that this is a sermon on the Christian walk, you will note that I will take to this particular uh, system in this sermon. I'll go through the aspects what we're looking at in the gospel, but then I'll be looking at aspects that we look at today. Because again, we're not the ones anticipating the coming of the Messiah. We believe that he's already come, resurrected, and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. So therefore, in looking today, rather, what we what have we seen? We've seen people instead pit the Messiah against the Old Testament as if he abrogated their teachings and adages. But I've already shown you here, he's showing the harmony between the old and the new. So, in his fulfillment of this, this is what we lack in the church today. They will say comically that he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament, but they don't understand what is all involved in it. If one were to take to say, I love the Lord all my heart and my soul, and they want to reiterate it and sound like a parrot. Sure, we believe what is coming out of your quote-unquote mouth. But do you believe what's coming out of your quote-unquote mouth? Or do you understand what it entails? I mean, have you not heard before that, yes, I believe that Jesus has come, and so much so, they will use to the point of John 3, 16 and 17, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Some, some will even be a little bit more clever and continue to verse 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. All of a sudden, all their actions and deeds and works in this world are justified because God has sent his Son not to come and judge the world. Does this not sound familiar? Does this not sound like someone who's taking from scripture and trying to pinpoint and so much justify their actions. But note, in this same particular chapter, our Lord makes the same acute point that Ezekiel makes. For what transpires when the new spirit and a new heart of flesh is put in you? I told you by verse 27, you are to carefully observe my ordinances. And so when we as Reformed Christians take to this understanding, are we not ridiculed? Are we not told we have an attitude of the Pharisees? See how all of it is somewhat flipped? They've seen in what the extreme extremism is towards pointing towards the law and so much so that you have salvation from it. 
They looked to the Messiah and said that, oh, now that he's fulfilled the law, I don't have to observe it. That is not what the Old Testament says. That is not what the Messiah says. And in today's Christianity, this is the reason why we have the world we have today. The audacity that they make to find the fault of the Spirit's work in his people is quite confounding and yet saddening. Because Christianity means a new attitude. Christianity means new obedience. And note, just take it from the words of our Lord himself, how he shows the harmony to Ezekiel. In John 3, 21, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought by God. These are the words of the Messiah, not mine. As we continue down this Christian walk in understanding at one point or another, we have been told, what do you hope for? Why do you believe what you believe? It's as if they could state, if I believe Christianity, what do I get out of it? So based on that question, you can actually pragmatically state, you will be among those of the popular view around the world. According to leading research and statistics, the belief in Christianity, so I'm not looking at any denominations, the quote, quote, when you, answer, when you answer this question, do you believe in God? They say yes. Makes up 31.11% of the 7.7 billion people that was accounted for on earth. So from a mathematical standpoint, they're saying 2.4 billion people believe in God. But then, pragmatically, the individuals who didn't come to believe or join the latest trend do not understand Christianity is not about popularity. Why do I say that? Well, let's venture on to John 6. Was it then that our master had an audience of 5,000 individuals to witness the miracle? And even though, even though he knew the intent of their hearts, John 2, 23 to 25, John 6, 15, John 6, 26, as a merciful and loving God toward the care of his creation and his sheep of those who is sheep amongst the fold, he sought their care. I bring you to the account in Mark, and particularly Mark 6, 33-34, in the same narrative of the five loaves and two fish. By verse 33, the people saw them going and recognized them, being the disciples, and ran there together on foot from all the cities, and got there ahead of them. And when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So by verse 35, when it was already quite late, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate. It is already quite late. Send them away so they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves some to eat. But our Messiah, he stated by verse 37, you give them something to eat. And they said to them, well then, master, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and look. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down 
bridegrooms on the grass. The people there were overjoyed. They had their bellies filled now. Weren't we stated in John chapter 6 and verse 14? But what's also interesting in that same chapter in that same verse, they use the same adage that Nicodemus used in, with the Messiah. Why no? They're, and they're overjoyed. They claimed him to be truly the prophet who has come into the world. But then indignation transpired. For remember, the Messiah knew the intent of their heart. So then by John 6.28 and by John 6.30, they then questioned to him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Did I not just turn two five loaves and two fish into a multiple of food so that you would eat as much as you want? And yet you come to question me after I showed what your true intent actually is? In fact, just as looking at our times, we know individuals who look towards John three sixteen and 17 to justify their actions, to say that I cannot lose my salvation, even though I may behave like a heathen. The Jews here know to him, well, why should we believe you? We have already been told that manna has fallen from the sky and fed our fathers. Did it not state in verse 31 in John chapter 6, our fathers ate the man in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. But ho, 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 our master replied, well, provide verse 29, in which they speak unto him that they were to want to believe. He said, this is what you are to believe. You are to believe him whom God has sent. And then, in which they stated to the master to please always give us this daily bread, as if to state to him that once they've received this daily bread, they will then believe. Our master states then, and in inviting them and testing them by verses 35 and 40 through 40, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. For that all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come from heaven. I do not do to my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. That everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I'll raise, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. But did they believe? I mean, did they not say, Lord, always give us this daily, always give us this bread by verse 34? No. They take to grumbling about Him by verse 41. They take to questioning His coming. By verse 42, they are filled with rage to the point that they argue. By verse 52, and finally, they disseminate and dissipate. By verse 66, until the remaining 12 disciples remains. Verse 67. Now, looking at our time, is this not the same that we have seen? For we've been told this is the work of God. The work of God in us that we will believe 
in him who he has sent. And in believing in him, we will show that we want to walk in his statutes, right? We want to carefully do what he has commanded us to do. But in being ridiculed and not being accepted, well, look who we have. We don't have a church of 5,000 or more. It's not the popular trend that's transpiring. I mean, if that's what you want, go ahead and find new friends there. But are you sure in your position and being there, are you obeying and coming to a newfound obedience? What's more interesting is behaving like the ones who are amongst the 5,000. Those same individuals, when all of a sudden, upon being in the church, they find that these messages don't seem to fit us. They start to disseminate and dissipate. And at one point, I wouldn't be shocked if they leave the faith altogether. During our walk in the Christian faith, we are also commanded to come to joy to our Father and worship Him. And it's not the location or building or time or season that is retrospective. It's the fact that we worship him in spirit and in truth. John 4, in particular, verse 23, which states, But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And in this, we share the same zeal as our master shared for his father's house. We now venture to John 2. For upon finding the attendants, including officers of the Sanhedrin, committing themselves to mercantile transactions in his father's house, John 2.14 states he fulfills the scripture by taking to disrupting their businesses and onlookers. For Psalm 69 verse 9 states, For zeal for your house has consumed me. So then by John 2, 15 through 17, he drives them out of the temple. And he told them, Take these things away and stop making my father's house a place of business. Huh. So like Nicodemus. And like the audience of the 5,000. Do they listen and believe? No, they pose the same question, the same adage in this. What sign do you show us as authority for you doing these things? So you would have thought, well, the zeal he showed and the love he showed for the temple, his father's own home, the place of worship, that would have been a sign for them to believe. The disciples believed. For they remember what the Old Testament adage showed, and look, he's fulfilling it. But note, their hardness of heart. Does our Lord answer them in the way they want to attend? Absolutely not. He takes again to providing doctrine. And he states by verse 19 in John 2, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. But because they were thinking in their flesh, they were Thinking in their flesh, as the Lord warned, if I told you earthly things that you do not believe, 
How will you believe I tell you about heavenly things? The Jews didn't speak with their flesh when they respond back in verse 20 in John chapter 2. It took us 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. You see, look at it now in our, our own time. When many come to worship, they should be readying their hearts. They should not be enthralled by how good the choir sings, not by the relics of what the building entails, not by how many seats that it can hold, not by any light show or any dance team, or even so, not being convicted because we lack tradition or practices of the Old Testament saints and or Testament saints. And I don't mind, and I'm not even going to front. It doesn't matter if you're reformed or not. All it is is just a title. All it is, you're just telling people your system of thought, your system of belief. What truly matters is that we've been afforded the means of grace. Now, for those who are not familiar with this, because you may not know who will be watching, you may not know who will be seeing this at what time. What does these means of grace mean? It means what we've been afforded based, based on the benefits of redemption. We being reformed, we take to a standard. And these standards are of uh, the uh, standards that were ratified in 1647 by the Westminster Assembly. And by question 88, it states, and I quote, what are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicated to us the benefits of redemption? In layman's terms, or in today's adage, what are the means of grace we've been afforded by Christ? And note their answer. The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicated to us the benefits of redemptions are, note here, his ordinances. Especially the word, sacrament, and prayer. Because they all have a cause. It is effectual for his people, in this regard the elect, for salvation. So for the word, the spirit of God makes the reading, especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing and convicting and converting Sinners, it tells people who you are. He lets you know where you've come from and where you have arrived now. The harmony I'm showing you between the Old and the New Testament is shown in how Jesus is fulfilling it. That's why in the summary, I took the time to go through the Old Testament to show he never abrogated the teaching. He only fulfilled it. He did it by his word, and he did it by his life. And then, in this, that it's effectual means of converting sinners, you are then now built up. Just like in Ezekiel, you are then caused to work, to be careful in his ordinances, to observe them. To want to have the joy of obeying them. And we're going to get to the reward for doing that. But it's through faith and faith alone. Because 
in the faith in Christ. It was his spirit. It seems redundant. It almost seems like we're coming off, whether it's Pastor JP or Pastor Jason. It seems only redundant when we speak about this, but this is the reality of the truth. We cannot believe unless the spirit has drawn us to do so. In the sacraments, the sacraments become effectual because there's no point in virtue in them. The sustenance in eating bread and wine is no different than the sustenance that a humanist takes. But the essence in which that they hold and what they've been consecrated as, it is to show the blessing of Christ and the continual work of his spirit in you. So then by the notion and the earthly movement of taking to the bread and the wine, do you spiritually feed on Christ? Do you spiritually drink of his blood? Because it shows a continual nourishment of your spirit so that you grow in the faith. And only by faith in him can you receive it. But then how about prayer? The communication that we are to have with God. You know, the humanists don't understand. When they lack certain things, they try to make a quick prayer in hopes that God will listen. Lord, my bill is due. I know I should not have spent that money on gambling, but I was hoping that I could make a quick buck, and now I can't pay my house mortgage. Help me, please. Well, if you were observing the law, why did you allot the money that you needed to take care of the necessities to gaming? What responsibility was that? Nowhere in my law did I ever taught you to be irresponsible. In fact, I even taught you not to covet. In fact, I even taught you not to steal. What? What has transpired here? I'm not going to, I'm not going to break my law in order to fulfill your desire and need here. But to those who offer prayers of your desires unto God, you ask for things that are agreeable to his will. And one of his will, of the things that are agreeable to his will is that you continue to obey. You continue to work and walk in his statutes to acknowledge and confess your sin, but then also thank him for the mercies. You're able to walk. You're able to think. You're able to speak. Faculties that you've seen your own human brothers and sisters, and I mean that because we all come from Adam, some of them lack this, and you do not. And we take advantage of that. And we don't consider the mercy that he's afforded us to be able to walk, to think, to communicate. And of which, in all that acknowledgement, coming to this last point of our own Christian walk, we now segue to what that promise is in regards to the obedience and the careful observance of his ordinances. We're promised eternal life by the resurrection. And our master makes the resurrection an expectation of all men, women, and children. And he brings a line of judgment to the resurrection of the obedient and the disobedient. John 5, 25 to 29. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who will hear will live. 
For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also life in himself. And by verse 27, he gave him the authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not be marvel at this. For an hour coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth those who did good deeds to the resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to the resurrection of judgment. As to those who committed the evil deeds, our Lord denotes very simply, they will suffer the resurrection of judgment. Why? Because they committed the false accusations of him. John 8, 13, the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Even so much, they will curse him. John 8, 48, did we not rightly say you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Furthermore, our Lord states, because their father, the devil, John 8, 41, and also John 8, 44, they are like him, and they judge in the flesh, John 8, 15, of which they're not of God to show themselves to be, or so they thought, John 8, 47, and that from all ramifications, just like the devil, they would die in their sins. And that's consequently because you do not believe in him. John 8.45 It's interesting. It notes it. He's stating it here. He is the true fulfillment. The true harmony. And he was to come. And in their anticipation, they should have seen this. They should have seen this. They should have listened and believed. But why couldn't they believe? I'll use my, uh, the Lord's own words. John 8, 23. You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Many on the day of judgment will find that it is too late. For the noting that the Lord makes of the timing of which it is too late to believe on earth. He states it in John 8, 28. Jesus said, when you live up the son of men, then you'll know that I am he. When you think in their day and age, when you think I've died and I'm gone, but then realize the power of God and what you thought was going to transpire. You believe then? Huh. He says it's too late. And even for us, he says it's too late as well. Recall the parable of Lazarus and the rich man to shed some light. Luke 16, 26-31. And no, because what did Abraham state? He stated because there should be a great physm fix or chasm fix. To prevent those who wish to come here, they will not be able to come here. And what's amazing is the rich man, upon his suffering, begs that Abraham would send someone to warn his brothers because they know they behaved like me. They did not believe the Messiah. They did not believe the words of the prophets. Understand the promises. They were not obedient. He begs them to go to his father's house, plead with his five brothers so they do not come here. 
But what does Moses, well, I'm sorry, what does Abraham state? They have Moses. They have the prophets. Let them hear them. But then he said, no, it's not even better. I heard them too. I heard them too. And yet I am here. How about someone from the dead? Oh. Then they will repent if someone from the dead came. But he said to them, if they didn't listen to Moses and the prophets, they would not be even persuaded if someone was raised from the dead. It must have been awe-inspiring then in John 11 when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And many did not know was to be involved or what the Messiah intended. Lazarus had been dead four days. John eleven seventeen and also verse 39. Many questioned him from his own disciples. John eleven sixteen, Martha and Mary, whom he loved. John eleven twenty one and 32. And the accompanied Jews with them. John eleven thirty seven. But John makes a pretty particular note. And that the love that the Lord had for Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. He stayed an extra two days. Why? As he then told earlier to his disciples, so that you may believe. And to the adage that was then before stated. We are to arrive to awaken Lazarus out of his sleep. John 11, 11 and John eleven fifteen. So upon Jesus shouting to Lazarus, come forth, we're told by many saw, believed, but then some went to see the Pharisees. To which upon hearing the resurrection of Lazarus, you think they would rather glorify God. Note what our Messiah states in John 5, 20 to 21. For the Lord loves the son and shows him all the things that he himself is doing. And the father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whomever he pleases. No. Upon hearing the resurrection of Lazarus, the Pharisees sought and plot to kill him. John eleven forty seven to 53. But we note that this is the deeds of those who are disobedient. And in the beginning, I told you we were promised eternal life in the resurrection. Well, the adage here is then brought in full focus. Because just as our Lord state, as he is the door to the sheep, in John 10, anyone who enters through him will be saved. And they will go in and they will find pasture. John 10, 7. Nine, And then, unlike the thieves and robbers who come to steal, kill, pillage, and destroy, our master, being the good shepherd, comes to give life, and he gives it abundantly. John 10, verse 10. And what's amazing is his sheep, who are then employed with his spirit. The sheep then knows him, and he knows them. John 10, 11, 14. And as promised in the fulfillment, showing that he's a fulfillment of the Old Testament and how he worked. As to Abraham, who was promised to be the father of many nations. In our own words of our own Messiah, he stated, Abraham saw this day and was glad. Our Messiah notes in the promise in which was being kept. 
in John 10:16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. To which we as the sheep will be one shepherd. I mean, sorry, one herd. And sharing the bond that the master has with the father. Our master states that we will be rewarded for in understanding and believing that he was the one who was to be sent. He fulfills the will of his father as we are taught to do as well. In his vocation, he was to lay down his life for the sheep. By verse 17 and 19 of John 10, it is for this reason the Father loves him, because he lays down his life so that he may take it again. And no one takes it away from him, but he lays it down on his own initiative, for he has been given the authority to lay it down and to take it up again. And this is the commandment he received from his Father. The bridge to this to our day and age and what we have been promised is like this. I will go to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 by verse number 20. It is then that Christ has been raised from the dead so that he can be the first fruits of those who fall asleep as the good shepherd that he is. And then this, in all who died in Christ will be made alive in Christ. For first, by verse 23, Christ is the first fruits, and after those who are in Christ at his coming. And then comes the end. Now, there's also a mystery. For some will say, well then, how are the dead raised? And well, what kind of body did they come? No, by John 11, we saw first, well, we didn't see, but in the understanding of, uh, in the first glimpse, of this resurrection, Jesus proclaims forth and calls out to Lazarus. And Lazarus comes back in the same body he died in. Of which, Paul states then, the body will be realized first on what it was on earth. By verse 38 in 1 Corinthians 15, God gives it a body just as he wished. And to each of the seeds, a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh. But there is one flesh of men, there's one flesh of beasts, there's one flesh of birds, another of fish. And then, upon the resurrection, of which they are to take, it will be based on the deeds. For, by verse 50 in 1 Corinthians 15, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, and nor the perishable inherit the imperishable. Yet, all in Christ will be changed for in a moment of an eye in a moment or in the twinkle of an eye the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will be raised with the imperishable and be changed by verse 53 the mortal will now put on immortality and the last enemy which should be abolished is death so then the ultimate goal the ultimate goal of this Christian walk, the ultimate goal of Christ being on earth to do a work of the Father is so that he can subject it all to him. And the Son himself will also be 
subjected to the one who subjected all to him so that God may be all in all. There is no lapse in which the Lord God makes upon his people. He's not lack. He is perfect for a reason. He's able to do something we cannot do. And what amazes me so much more is everybody just wants to claim Christianity but don't want to live the life. I know Captain always came up with this adage, and this is an ode to him, <laughs> but he always said the reformed life is hard because he heard me say it's hard. But the reason why he would say that I would say it is because I'm living the life and I'm realizing how hard it is. It's not burdensome. I just realized how hard it is to keep these statutes, to be careful in these ordinances. How many times can we walk around and realize, man, I really wish I could do that. I really wish I could do this or do that or do this or go here, or go there. And then you realize, God, that won't be observing his law. And that's the work of the spirit in you. In your Christian walk, you are moved to walk that narrow path. He didn't say the path was short. He said the path was narrow. Because it's very easy to go too far to the left, go too far to the right. But then the promise that we've been given, and this is not to go on a diatribe, because this sermon is now here closed, but the promise we have been given is pretty clear. Upon his work to preserve us, he's going to undo what was done in the garden. We will know what mortality is. I'm sorry, immortality. And it's amazing how a lot of the humanists try to look for that fountain of youth, try to sell whatever new that is on TV to make themselves look youthful. But Christians know what's at the end of the tunnel. We're going to put on immortality. We're going to know what it feels like not to hurt, not to cry. And in this, in all that I've said, Paul's very words is how I want to also conclude, in which he gives the encouragement. He tells them, be steadfast, be immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because in knowing this, your toil is not in vain in the Lord. With that being said, Pastor Jason will return and we will then continue to John 12 as we then look towards that portion in our Master's last coming days. Let's go to the Lord our God in prayer.